Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Welcome to the Shrimp and Sivret Show, a member of the Nation Network of Podcasts and delivered by DoorDash. Hey, hey, Danny boy. How you doing, my friend? Good, Shrimpy. What's going on? Not too much, but I'm pumped for this episode six. Pumped to see you again. How has your week been? Fill me in. Uh, not bad. We, uh, we had a big heat wave here in London. Uh, yeah. So we got some gardening in. I didn't get to do the garden party that you guys have out in Latvia, but... Uh, and if you're listening, we, we usually film on uh, on Tuesdays. So it's usually during the working hours at Eastern uh, Standard Time, which my kids are at daycare and and time wise, it's after hours for for Shrimpy. So uh, what, I got the call this morning that one of my guys had a bit of a fever. So uh, I, I rolled time back to the to the 90s and uh, and tried to get the health remedy of, you know, chicken noodle soup and drinking <laughs> ginger ale through a straw so hopefully my two-year-old is is calm while we're filming but if we get interrupted then so be it sometimes life happens but um yeah it's all good you'd understand obviously right oh yeah 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 still come home every week with something new so it's been an adventure this this parenting thing and uh it's amazing it's amazing actually there's it's yeah you do so much for your kid and, and also the part of it of watching what your kid goes through. It's, it's crazy. She going, we talked about it last week, but going to preschool or um, every week she comes back with a new bug. And then in this time it's been crazy because you don't know what to overreact to or underreact to, you know, like fevers, like immediately, like, whoa, you know, the COVID or whatever. So it's been wild this, this whole year, as soon as, you know, as soon as she's gotten sick, it kind of throws up your, my radar at least makes me a little bit paranoid. Yeah. Well, I think, I think I did pretty good job. I mean, he's got a full stomach. He's watching some cartoons. He's pretty soon. I think he's going to be sleeping or maybe he already is. So hopefully it buys me enough time to, to film this, but if not, he might be a, a, a star on our, on our show, but um, <laughs> your, your week. And I saw you posted something about what the hell's Astromets or, or what, what is this NFT thing? What's Astromets? Is that you? That's a sick yeah. name. Yeah, it's pretty cool. OG Astro Mitz is, is my tag name and it's part of my, my project, Space Force Hockey. So um, it's a really cool project. It's, it's a, you know, an online education development um, project and it's, it's attached to the NFT space. So it's really cool. I'm, I'm excited about it. Actually, it's, um, you know, we're basically what we're doing, walking from A to Z, teaching the hockey players how to shoot, how to pass um, college admission stuff, nutrition, off-ice workout, we're, we're really bundling it all into one community. And then when wrapping it into an NFT, it makes, so that project, that's your, that's your door ticket to the project. You buy the NFT and that gets you in and gets you access to the community, gets you access to all this content. And when I say community, 
uh, with the NFT space, it's attached to the Discord. And that Discord is like, again, it's like an open community, but you got to have a door ticket to get in there. So it's it's pretty cool. And you come in there and people can be interactive with me. Um, you know, I'm going to get other pro players and, and ex current players in there to be doing some stuff, building some content. The content's going to be more in the sense of like how to. You know, you think of a guy that's a half wall guy, a, a, a you know, top end defenseman showing, walking the line, how they see the game. So it's an educational project for the players. And I'm super excited to be involved with it and kind of leading the way right now. So uh, we're off the ground and running. So, so NFT, it, it like helped help me understand that a little bit more. And obviously our viewers that, that don't understand, but, but is that, is that like a, a membership that's capped or how, or what's, what is an NFT? Like how can anyone buy this or how can you be a part of the community? Yeah, it's, we've made it really simple in the sense that you, it's just like signing up for a membership. And then we have people on the back end that walk you through on how to set up a, a wallet, a crypto wallet. And there's different, you know, there's different things. That's for me, it's, this is going to be a project and making sure educating people that it's, it's not like your normal NFT thing, right? Right now, NFTs are such a buzz and people are trying to buy an NFT for 30 cents and sell it for $300,000. And it's wild, right? Like you see this stuff every day on social media and then also like carpet rug ones where the value in this NFT is, is in the development. So your kid comes in, you buy this for your kid, the kid comes in, gets access to that content. They start developing in our community. And let's say they stay in there for two or three years, develop every, every day they get new content on how to shoot, how to hockey IQ stuff all again, development, right? In two years, the value of the NFT is that your kid developed, and then you may be able to resell that NFT for, I, I, hopefully one day it's worth a thousand bucks, but it's not going to be one of those, you know, buy it today. And then in tomorrow you can flip it around for $10 million. So the whole, you know, the utility of the NFT is that being inside that community, the new people that I bring in through my network to, to, you know, to help the players develop, give them the information, teach them what they know about the game. That's really where the value of this NFT is. What makes it different than, you know, doing a subscription model is exactly that you can resell this ticket. You buy that ticket, you hold it, it's in your crypto wallet. And with the value you feel you've got out of it at the end of it, you could sell that ticket again. You could resell that seat. So it's, it's new and I, in, exciting and it's just again something different and i've been always been a little bit futuristic in my things so I'm, i might be a little ahead of the curve here but that that's the point of it i want to i got asked to do an nft and the nft with the way that they were going at the time was players are like minting their moment so you think about that do you have a moment that's valuable like super valuable do I is what I ask myself. No, I don't. What about the kayak after the goal selling? I saw that posted. <laughs> like that. Ryan McDonald might have bought that. <laughs> he wasn't too happy. I I love. I mean, that moment was unbelievable because you know Mac was obviously we were teammates with him, and Mac had my number. Like he obviously we practiced with him every day for two years, played with him every day for two years. He knew me like the back of his hand. So that whole game. You can hear it in that video when uh, the announcer says, and Shrimp won't officially record a point, but he does score in the shootout. I had like 13 shots in that game. And there was there, there was two times where I came out from behind the net. And you, I used to have this move where I'd come out from, if we were behind the net facing the blue line, I'd come out to the left, so I'm out of my forehand. And I'd come around, and most goalies would overplay, and I can go short side shelf. Wouldn't even have to look. I just knew it was there. I did it on Mac twice in that game. As I took the shot and I let it release, he had his two, he was on his back, had two pads stacked. So imagine that he was on the ice, had his two pads stacked. So his pads were facing me and he was yelling from the ice, F you, Bob, <laughs> because he was, 
he was already there with his pad stack like three seconds before I let the shot go. He knew exactly what I was going to do. So long, sorry, long story long, but then I got that chance in that shootout and I went bar down on him blocker side and I got him to bite right at the, about the hash marks. I yeah. threw a fake and you Cameraman. can see his glove hands. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It bit hard. So after I went, I've ever put that in blocker. I, I had to, I had to do a legendary celly on him. And, uh, anyways, so this, yeah, this he, was a regular season game then obviously. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it was. Did you guys run into these guys again? Like are in the playoffs or anything or no? No, we didn't run into him that year in playoffs. The next, okay. the next, uh, is that, yeah, that like, we didn't run I into feel him. like that would be some bulletin board material. Oh like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. Like I think uh, it wouldn't surprise me if they had like a, a kayaker or something. <laughs> hilarious. Yeah. Let's throw paddles at me on the ice. Oh man. But no, so that would be your minted moment potentially, right? Potentially, you know, I didn't really think that that was, you know, I didn't have that. Like Gretzky has the game, you know, the record breaking everything. You know, there's certain guys in the game that have these valuable moments that, that might, you know, bring some value. So what I thought would be valuable was this, making a community where every, you know, again, every day I'm uploading content and teaching them what I know about the game and then bringing people of my friends that know a lot about the game, adding that continuously, adding that value in being inside that community. So the NFT space, it's really, I don't want to get too caught up in it because it's not about that. You know, it's just more of a door ticket and it's something different than doing you know, again, like a subscription model, the end of that subscription, it's, it's over. So this makes it cool where you could resell that seat and there's only a limited amount of seats. So that's, that's what makes it exciting. And, and for me to build this content and kind of be able to spread my knowledge in this way is, is it's fun for me because you can't be everywhere at once. Right. Um, and hopefully I can pass along all the things I collected in the game and get a chance to play with guys. You name the guys bolds, you know, go down the list, collect so much information. How do you give that out? No, what's, what's the, uh, what would be like the age, age range that you're targeting for, for a player? Like, like, is there a certain caliber or age bracket that players would be more so inclined to be a part of it? Uh, really not, not really, you know, it's anywhere from youth. I, I go from ABCs of shooting, ABCs of passing, you know, then there's going to be obviously a little bit of a higher, you know, level of understanding of the game. You start talking hockey IQ stuff and attack and triangle. So it's going to be value packed for all sorts from the beginner, all the way up to the pro um, putting in the information in there where there's, you know, there's different folders of information, different folders of content where you can click on and open that up. And it shows you again, you know, what you're looking for and what kind of information you want to watch and videos you want to see. So I got maybe at seven, you're ready for it. You know, you never know, but and that's the thing. I work with some young kids too. Uh, you know, I got a youth ball player, Christopher Pinko. He's a kid I've mentioned before. I think he's a stud. Like he, he does things that at a high level, he's 11 years old. So um, having the ability to give him information and let him see some high level stuff helps him advance a little bit faster, but that doesn't mean that everybody has to go that level. You know what I mean? They kind of go at your own pace. So um, it's, it's, a, yeah, it's pretty unique and I'm, I'm really excited about it. Well, and- you're bringing it up. How did you, uh, how did you come about this name? That's like, ask what's O is OG stand for something like Astromits is pretty sick. Original gangster, baby. I'm the oh, original, you know, kind of with the tricks and stuff that are out now and, and that sort of thing. I, I, you were there for it. So, and some part of it, I was starting that stuff when I was 11 years old. I really playing lacrosse. I didn't do the Michigan, but I was playing lacrosse with a hockey stick for in different you know aspects. So, yeah, I think I've been called the OG quite a few times and I, I thought I'd finally kind of own it and, slap it on a cool name and Astro Mitt's a little futuristic, you know, a little different and uh, space force is unique in a sense. It's not just, uh, you know, it's, it's not just gimmicky. It's really inside that community. We're going to teach them how to, you know, use the space, 
use, you know, use the ice surface. And one thing for me is where I'm really passionate about is teaching players how to use the air of the ice in that space, whether it be sauce passes, whether it be playing hockey, like a lacrosse stick, how to pick the puck up, how to use that space. To me, it's very dynamic and it's very different. And not many people can teach that. And I think it's, it's my, that's my, uh, my mission is to teach people how to use the air dynamic of the ice, that space. And so we put that into the name and it's a little bit, you know, and it also gives it kind of sort of that NFT futuristic feel to it as well. Space force, you can play with it and um, have fun with it. Kids will love it. And, you know, we got some cool names for them when they come in the community. So um, cosmonauts, you know, astronauts, it's, it's pretty cool. So uh, it's exciting and something uh, I've been spending a lot of time on lately. So it's, it's exciting to get it off the ground. Oh, that's cool. That's really cool. Unique. Um, and obviously forward thinking um, futuristic, I guess, speaking of futuristic, uh, I wanted to bring to the table, uh, the posted picture that I had of myself, uh, that was me with the Knights and that old school Chrome Easton SL with the, with the Chrome <laughs> blue spray, like talk about futuristic, having a Chrome stick. Um, I actually got a lot of, uh, feedback from players. Um, I had a, I had a, a players contact me direct, like, because everyone wants to sort of talk about gear, right? Gear gurus. Um, and, uh, one of them was, uh, Derek Nesbitt who follows us, uh, quite frequently. So he had made a couple comments about it. Um, and, uh, the other was, uh, Ryan O'Mara, who was, uh, an Oilers prospect with us as well. Um, but, uh, which brought me to the topic of remember, remember when we were in the A and you had to use certain sticks. Yeah. Like the, I don't know if you like, so those are listening and when we were in the minors, they had signed a deal with. Is it CCM or Reebok or Reebok? CCM Reebok. Or it was Reebok at the time. Okay. So everyone had to discard the sticks that they were using to use these Reeboks or CCMs, which essentially were like turning, talk about futuristic, turning time back. Like we might as well be <laughs> having like a Victoriaville or like a wooden Hespler or something, right? Like I think it was a little too before their time of jumping into the game, but uh, those, lo those logs were brutal. I think, the, I think it's changed now. Um, I think... Uh, I, I watched AHL now that the, the caliber of, of stick is up to par now. Um, so I think they're using good quality uh, sticks, but at the time for us, it wasn't the greatest. And, yeah. um, just, just speaking about gear in general, like I was never really a, a gear guru. Like I know we would always have reps come in when you're in the NHL with gloves and everything. And I, I sort of just wanted protection on the glove side of things. My stick, uh, I tried to, you know, I tried unfortunately get out of CCM as quick as I could because, of the product we had in, in, in the HL at the time, I think their, their product is better now. So I jumped into Bauer. The only thing that sort of was consistent for me was I, I couldn't get out of my graphs. Like I know they're heavy, uh, leather and, you know, probably not the prettiest to look at, but for me, like comfort and protection was the number one for me. But, um, like, I, I know you are uh, more of a, a gear guru. So what, what do you think of yeah. gear back then to now? And what, what was your, MO all the time. What were you? You were rocking the 707s, no? Or yeah, like I, I like 27s. I was 707. It was the 707, yeah. It was like, it was almost like the running shoe boot yeah. with um, over the ankles, there were little flaps, leather flaps that would come in to, to tie up. But what it gave was a lot more ankle mobility. So I, I yeah. as, as, much, as bad as it sounds, like I, I skated, I used a lot of ankle push in, in my skating. I think nowadays the boots are so like ski boot-esque that you don't really get as much ankle 
drive or like flexion, I guess, dorsiflexion. But uh, for me, I, I couldn't get out of that. I tried to jump into the like Bowers, which were, I think at the time, vectors or something like that. Um, or no, sorry, vapors. And I, I just couldn't, they were lighter for sure. But I just, I was just so accustomed to yeah. having that ankle mobility when I played that I, I couldn't, I couldn't get into it. I still, I still wear, wear them. Like I still wear graph 707s. I don't know if they make them anymore, but I, I still, I'm preserving them <laughs> for, for my whole life. I'm getting a pair of whipped up right now, actually in the, uh, in the bond factory in London. So they got me a pair coming. I got the great whites coming back out, coming oh, out of retirement. Yeah. I took your, I took your social media comment to heart and I, I got in touch with graph and I said, Hey, get those bad boys working. You got whites so coming. I'm bringing the slippers back, baby. <laughs> Dude, oh, I, I mean, I remember I took a lot of slack for that back then in the days too. I remember in our, our year in Springfield, we had our coach at the time, don't need to bring him up his name wise. I was in the trainer's office getting my, my skates warmed up and Ralphie was the trainer at the time. Ralphie was helping me out and the goat and the coach comes in and goes, Hey, you're not wearing those. And I started laughing. That was a joke. You know, it's kind of like, ha. Ah. He's like, no, I'm not joking. You're not wearing those. He goes, Ralphie, put those in the box, send them back. I'm like, what? He's like, you're not wearing white skates on my team. He's like, those are going back. You're not wearing them. <laughs> he made the, he made him send them back. The great whites, man. That's so that's the one I change over. You see some Oilers. I saw a card the other day, a hockey card, I mean, an Oilers jersey, and I had the black boots on. It just wasn't the same, man. It wasn't, you know? It wasn't, it wasn't me you at were all. Robert. Wasn't... You were Robert with black skates and you're <laughs> trumpy, trumpy a nerd. Oh man, it took my identity away, but no, I was big into gear and like style and, and style and feel uh, were huge, huge, obviously components for me, but I, I rocked those the white, gray, gray, white graphs for a long time. Um, and those super light twigs were like the best sticks. Cause I, even for me, the first synergy that came out, it was more guys got obsessed with it because it was new. And it was a one piece, but I remember picking it up and I hated it. I actually didn't like the synergy, the first synergies that came out. I liked the Z bubble with a focus flex blade. It had a sick, uh, man, the feel on that thing was unbelievable. I had a Z felt, too. Yeah. Once I went to the one piece, I lost feel. I lost the feel in my shot. Like for me, it's that last piece of contact uh, on the whip. And it just, with the one piece, I lost it. Um, but the, the super lights were the best model for sure. They were, they were really good. Uh, we, we, we were kind of spoiled a little bit in London though. We did, we got a lot of attention there. Obviously we're a hot market. I'm not so sure that other junior players would have had what we had as far as like reps in the room, like basically handing out candy, you know, you remember Scott Shepard used to every week used to come out with like 10 sticks from a different company. He'd use one or two of them and the rest of them would be, I don't know where they went. I can't say exactly <laughs> where they went, but they weren't in the room anymore. Um, but yeah, we were a little bit fortunate in London because we were in such a hot market. People wanted us in their gear. I think we still had the CCM. We had the Reebok deal as far as gloves, helmets, and like the pant shells had to be that, but we were fortunate. We had to use whatever twigs we wanted. And that was the, the, the weirdest thing, honestly, going pro was to have that. I wouldn't say it's a right, but like, that's like you were saying, I was hard, man. I wasn't too particular, but your stick is your weapon. Like that's your feel. Like that's that's everything on the ice. You can get accustomed to a helmet. Who cares? Gloves, they'll break in eventually. Uh, but when it comes to twigs, man, if they're not performing the way that you have dialed it into, you know, those things for me, that doesn't 
it didn't change. I remember I didn't get to use the, I, I ended up getting to Bowers my rookie year in the minors in the A, but it took me six months, right? First of all, I was a rookie and Wilkes-Barre was like, nobody's getting exempt. And so nobody got exempt. And we had old, like that time, like there's older guys, there's 32, 33, 37 year old guys on your team. If they're not exempt, then like how you as a 20 year old kid going to get exempt. That was kind of the times. Right. And eventually after like five months of complaining, I, I finally went like to the team. I'm like, I can't shoot. I can't do it. Like I'm, you know, I went down on a couple uh, shootouts. I know exactly where I'm shooting 13 inches over the pad. I'm going to shoot at 13 inches over the pad. The blade totally gives out and I dump it in the corner. Don't even hit the net on a penalty shot. And I'm kind of like, guys, like, I promise you, this is not me. Like <laughs> it's the arrow, you know? And they're like, all right, fine. If, you, if it's that big a deal, like you got to get the approval of every guy in the team that it's that. And they think it, if it's okay with them and the older guys that you get exempt, you can go, you know, get your own sticks, but you got to pay for them. And I was like, fine. So I, luckily I got it. I got to use one of the exemptions, but it was, it's a major thing, man. Like, I don't know. It's, it's crazy. It was crazy to me that you could use whatever you want growing up or whatever dad would pay for when you were a kid. And then in junior, the team would pay for them. And then you get the pro and they're like, Nope, you're going to use this one. Yeah, and they weren't coming right. This isn't like a batch on the company. Like they were wrong. Like yeah. I, I was a square toe user. I still am. The first batch came with a rounded toe. That's a huge problem for me. I use it. I also use it around rounded shaft. So the first one came with a square shaft and a round toe. <laughs> then the next one came, got my square toe, but the shaft was wrong. And it was also, I used 80, I think I was using 82 flexes back then. It came at like 102. So then I couldn't, you know, all these things, all these problems, these are big problems when you start talking about shooting. Yeah. You know, I think, I think they pre maybe prematurely at the time jumped into it, the game, right? Like when, and weren't ready for product yet, which unfortunately for us, like there were some teams in the A that, that didn't go with that example. Like I remember Chicago Wolves, I think at the time were like, no, nah, no, nah, we're going to do. And these guys are obviously out, like just ripping They're they win. And it's like, it's because of the sticks, obviously. <laughs> but, but it was, it was different. That Hadar Krog, they were stacked too. Yeah, they were good. They were good. Days. They but, were really good. But they also had the advantage of having better yeah. arrows, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> or That's weapons, hilarious. I guess. But, but yeah, no. And, and we're, so back to the gear thing, like, I was never really big into it. I just, are there any guys that you remember that were, you had made mention to Shep, but like anyone in, in the NHL, I remember, I remember the weirdest thing I thought was, um, uh, Brian Boucher used to drench his gear before he went out. Like he had one of these like cleaner solution bottles, just full of water. And he would just soak his gear. Like, yeah. like it'd be soaking wet by the time you, but he liked, he liked having that, like, you know, broken in moist feel versus the, you know, sweat sort of dried out type gear, stiff gear. But I, and, and that guy started doing it. Like I think Gagne, uh, Simon Gagne started to, Oh, this is cool. And it, it, it turned into be a bit of a fad. Right. But um, that was one of the ones where I thought that was, that was interesting where uh, funny. You know, I, that. I, I played with Bush and, and Zook. The goal, you're talking about the goal. Yeah. yeah? Brian Bush. Yeah. yeah. And, the, and the thing was for him, he needed a fan in between periods. He sweat kind of like you sweat so much. Right. And, it was hilarious. Like there was a language barrier between the trainer and him and he didn't get his fan. And so he, Bush brought his own fan in. And I remember the first game, first game we were there and Bush set up his fan because he couldn't get Vibe to get the fan going. He couldn't communicate with him. So he brought his own stuff and he set it up and he went to go do his stuff, whatever he had going on. And Vibe took the fan away. And then they, 
there's like this huge altercation between peers, not a huge, but like back and forth. And neither one of them understood each other. And it was like, what the hell's going on? And then Josh Holden had to get in the middle of it and like kind of pick it up. But no, I just remember that that was like, that's funny you say that because I remember he used to, after periods, he would take his boot off and be like, look, oh, and it would like pour out like a puddle. I was like, holy crap, like that's bananas how much he would he would be sweating. But yeah, it's funny. It's funny you bring that up. That's a that's a great memory. <laughs> Vibe and Bush going at it. <laughs> like oh. the trainer, like sometimes you gotta shake your head. You're like, man, this guy played in the show for like how long? Like he wants a fan. Like, don't touch his stuff, <laughs> don't touch his shit, man. Like, I just it was unbelievable. But uh yeah, Bush was an awesome guy. He was really he wasn't around long in the zoo, but he was a really good dude. Yeah, he was good. I, I got along really well with him. He did, I think he's one of the better color guys or in between the, the benches commentators i know he was with uh, in canada with us here for a bit and i think he jumped over to whether it be nbc or tnt i don't really see him as much anymore but i always thought he gave good insight spoke very well um, yeah. and had a lot of good stories um the the other thing is the guys with guys with stories i had made i had made mention earlier um derek nesbitt plays in the echl i played with him in uh, st louis's farm system uh in peoria and we were actually coached by jared bednar so uh, who's in the finals now with, with Colorado, but uh, he was a guy that could just remember everything. Like, yeah, I still keep in contact with him and uh, I'll, I'll mention a player's name and he'll have some story with it. Like, so we'll eventually have to get him, get him on our show. Once we start getting guests, I know we have a bit of a, a lineup of guys that are um, waiting to, to come on. So, uh, and I guess if, if anyone's listening and want us to try to get someone specifically, please reach out to us uh, on our social media and, uh, and we'll accommodate as best we can, but uh, when we were in Peoria, uh, Peoria, Illinois, it's there's not much to do in in the city, and uh, I had a pretty good um, uh, apartment. So, and I lived by myself. So, uh, we would, you know, our gatherings, get-togethers, we would always sort of come over to my house, right, or my my condo, and, uh, have some drinks, play cards, or whatever. And we got into this, bring it back to wrestling. We got into this. I realized that I didn't realize at the time, but. Uh, once we played together, I realized that he was like a diehard wrestling fan too, right? <laughs> and to a point where he had the DVDs of all the Royal Rumbles, like from, I don't know how he got them all, but it was like from the 80s, he'd have all these Royal Rumbles. So what our parties ended up being, like I said, there wasn't a lot to do in, in Peoria, Illinois, but what our team parties would be, would be uh, guys would come in and they would just pick a number, one to 30, and someone had whatever, if you had number six as the entrance, or, and then we'd watch, you know, the 1992 Royal Rumble. And <laughs> as the entrance come in, those, that's the guy you had, right? So everyone would put five bucks in and you're watching the, you know, number four goes on and they're wrestling. And then a minute later, number five comes out a minute later, number six come out. And it's like, this is my guy. And it's like, doink the clown or something. And you're like, oh, <laughs> I'm for sure losing this. Right. But it got to be pretty fun because uh, you, you'd be so invested in your one guy when there's all of them in the, in the ring, like trying to toss each other out, but you'd be so invested in that one guy. And then eventually, obviously I never really won it, but, uh, it was, it was, and it was pretty funny and, and fun, uh, at the time, uh, looking back, it's sort of like, I couldn't believe we actually did that, but there wasn't a lot to do there, <laughs> yeah. but, but at, at the same time, I'm like, how the hell, so when we do have them on, I got to ask him how the hell you have all the DVDs of all yeah. the Royal Rumble. That's like, unbelievable. And he could, and, and he's one of those guys that you, you, you know, you could be like, oh yeah, 1982 or rumble. And he'd be like, oh yeah, I think, uh, yeah. Hulk Hogan tossed out like, and I, I'm like, oh yeah, he won. I don't know. I'm not, I'm a wrestling fan fan. I wasn't like a, I'm like a, my memory wasn't the greatest, but he, he's the same when it comes to hockey too. Like you could say a, 
a player and he'd be like, Oh yeah, he was a, a left-hand shot used, uh, I think a jury pattern uh, when he, when he played in, in Wilkes-Barre or, you know, and I'm like, Holy cow, but we'll eventually have to get him on. Cause he's a, he's a good guy to, to talk stories with, but it'd be awesome. I don't know him that well, but I know that, it, that last year had a big mile mark for him at the thousand games. I mean, uh, it's a big, big shindig for him down in Atlanta. So he's been grinding pretty hard playing a lot of games and it, I'd love to hear some of these stories. I got to hear about this, this Peoria time. It'd be, right. it'd be interesting. We had a, sure. we had a good Listen, team. Like we, we had, uh, we had Patty O'Sullivan got traded to us. We had TJ Hensick, who uh, was obviously a, a really big point producer. I think he played on your world junior team. He's a year older yep. than you, or you played on yeah. his world junior team, vice versa or whatever, but he's still playing in, in Toledo. I think they're in the finals right now in the ECHL, but uh, you know, these are guys that I'd like to eventually have on because just the stories range in all capacities, but um, yeah. So if anyone, if anyone's listening and want us to try to get someone on, like, we'll we'll venture into scouting scouts coming on or assistant GMs by all means drop some names and we'll try to get them on. Uh, I know we have a bit of a lineup with thoughts still messaging me all the time to come on. So I think he probably will have to be our first guest, but, um, but yeah, no, that's my, so anyways, that was not to get on a tangent there, but that was my bringing it to the table is, is a gear talk. I wasn't really a, a big guy in, in gear, but um, now that I know that you're getting graphs made, I, I should, reach out and get some 707s made again but anyways what's your what's your bringing to the table uh yeah i'd like to talk about players heading into tryouts or training camps and and identifying who they are as players um i think it's you know a big mistake for players when they go to these you know tryouts or training camps trying to be somebody that they're not you know and that's it's a tricky thing um but I think it's a really important thing to, to understand who you are as a player. And to, when you go to these tryouts or these training camps, represent yourself that way, play that way, play that game. I think it's, it's a big mistake to go in there and be a phony in some regard or play something that you're not play a role that you're not comfortable or you don't know how to play. You know, if you think you're going to go in there and I'm going to score a thousand points, but you're actually like a third line checker and a PKer. Think about that. If you do fluke, you know, have a fluke and you lights out and you wind up putting up hundred points, whatever you get what I'm saying in a tryout or you put up big points, that's going to be what's expected of you. And you don't know how to do that. It's not going to service yourself. And that's not going to be, you know, that's not going to help you uh, be able to be the player that you are or, you know, play to your best potential. So I think it's important because to try, this is a good time. Now I think, you know, with youth hockey tryouts, maybe have just passed or coming up, but I know there's a lot of USHL training camps that are coming up, main camps that are coming up. So that kind of audience that would be listening to this, that's, you know, going into that, I think it's really important. And when you're watching these NHL playoffs and these really important games that are happening right now, they're, they're packed full of information of, of types of players. Um, you know, I think you, every team needs a certain this, every team needs a certain that, but I think the mistake is again, every player wants to be McKinnon. Every player wants to be McCarr. And if that's not your identity, Again, try not to go into these things and pretend that that's what you are. It's not to say that you can't practice and get to that level eventually, but if it's not, again, I, what we talked about when I brought it into the table is identifying who you are as a player. And that means something. You know, it's obviously a little bit different when you're talking about 10-year-old Tommy or, or 10-year-old Sally. That's a little bit different. But when you're like a 15 to 17-year-old kid heading into these important things, identifying what type of player you are and producing that at these tryouts. Um, and Danny, you can speak to this as well. You probably you just got done with tryouts not too long ago. 
and what, what would you say as far as coming from a coach's perspective and maybe on how to helping them identify who they are for themselves and then what you think about as a coach? Yeah, you're right. We, we just selected our, our team. I coached the London Knights uh, under 16 team. Uh, so the kids that are uh, due to be drafted in the OHL this year, but uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting because I almost question if, if the players watch enough hockey, like I know growing up, we watched a lot of hockey and with, you know, everyone having phones, social media, there's all kinds of other distractions. Um, but, but I think, I think if you're watching games, you can sort of identify with a player. Like for me, I used to love watching Pavel Bure. Uh, you know, they, they were playing in Vancouver, which is three hours, uh, uh, time change and later for me. And so after dinner, or after my own game, I'd come home and I'd watch, you know, the first period or two of the Vancouver game at 10 30. And, uh, and then in the morning I'd wake up and watch the highlights of how it ended. Right. But Pavel Burry was like my favorite player, really offensive, uh, goal scoring dynamic forward. And I was a D my whole life. I played D from as soon as I could skate. Right. But that was my favorite player, but I identified myself to be more like a Brian Leach or a Ray Bork type D where he distributes a puck and jumps in every once in a while and like plays a good, strong defensive game. Like I, that would be a guy that I watch and be like, I would, I want to be like Brian Leach. Like this is the style of play that I want to be. Uh, and I, and I, I almost wonder if, if players don't really watch hockey as much or, or have as much knowledge in, of, of the rosters to, to identify of who, which guy you, you want to be like, or who you think you're going to be like. Cause I think if I could pull players and ask sort of like who their favorite player is, you're going to see a lot of McKinnon, McDavid, McCars. And then if I said, okay, which player do you think you play? Like you're probably going to see the same answer, which to your point, I don't think when you're, when you're a coach trying to select a team, there's all different types of players and personalities that you need in a team to be successful. Right. You, you can't have a full roster up front of McKinnon's and a full roster on the back end of McCarr. For one, they're just not available. And two, there's different roles that need to be played. Like you look at Colorado now and you have Helm, uh, I think on the fourth line, very serviceable, uh, defensive minded killer. Uh, I think um, Cogliano, very, very similar. You have Kadri who can put up offense like he did this year but his MO is more of a second line center. Who's hard to play against, like kills penalties, like serviceable in all areas. But uh, yeah, I, I just, I, I'm with you on that as far as identifying yourself as a, as a player. And, and when you get to training camp, like at least for me, when our training camp, I, I'm not keeping stats. Like, I don't care if a guy has five goals in, in the, in the training camp tryout, like if I'm if he stands out to me because he's scoring, okay, good. I'm not at the end of the game looking, going, oh, he had, oh, this guy had five, five goals. I'm going to take him. Obviously, if you're scoring five goals, you're doing something, right? But points, I think, at the end of it, aren't the end all be all. Like, yeah. um, as you, you know, clear, clear cut, you can see who are your elite offensive players, and then after that, you're looking for players who can support the puck. Are defensively responsible. I'm not saying I don't. I'm. I'm. I don't want a player who's offensive. That's not what I'm saying by any means. But in the season, you're probably not going to be put in a position to be the half full guy, because we already have 
one or two or three or four of them already. And that's sort of their, their skill set. That's where they're, they're elite at. But what I'm looking for is maybe someone who's maybe a little more, you know, grittier or determined in the defensive zone or is more physical or more responsible or supports a puck better or someone that I can put throughout the lineup. Like they can play in a checking position role. They can also play as a up and down the wing puck hound type player. Like there's all different variations of, of the type of player that you need to create a team. And I, I think you're right in saying that a lot of players come in and think, oh, I got to, I got to score to get noticed. Like, sure. Maybe some coaches would, would look at, it. and I think that like, you know, that's poor judgment on the coach's side. If you're just taking a, players who are completely all offensive, you're going to find players that fit certain roles for you. And I, and I think if you are a player who is hardworking and physical and determined uh, supports the puck well, defensive minded, or maybe not as offensive, don't try to go out and be Wayne Gretzky and try It's like, you're, you're trying, I, you're going to try to make yourself look better and in doing so, like you said, it's uncharacteristic and you may be forcing plays. Whereas if the, yep. I, I looked at it as, as defenseman, a defenseman that goes back and grabs a puck and looks up. If there's an option there, I want the puck in the forward's hands, distribute the puck to the forward, right? Don't check off, you know, Rob Shrump on the wing to look for a center guy. Oh, now, and I'm like, oh, where's my right wingers? He's stretched, but nope, not there. And I'm going to go back to Rob Shrump and that's closed off. And I just picked up, picked, got the puck picked off or I got stripped just by trying to forcefully make a, a really good play when just make, just be natural and make the simple play. Cause the game is all about mistakes. So the, the limited number of stakes that you make the better in hockey, right? Like every goal is pretty much generated from some sort of mishap or a mistake. And uh, I just feel like that sometimes players will go into camp thinking they have to do more or be something they're not, or be ultra offensive or productive to no. If you're, if you're a, a defensive minded centerman or you're a centerman that isn't as offensive win draws, make it hard on other players to play against. If you're a D man, finish your check, make sure you put the guy on his back, like in the corner, jump up in the, like, you don't have to be, you know, you don't have to be Makar or McKinnon. And, and I just think you're right. I think going into the camp, you just have to know what type of player you are. And maybe that's the starting point is some players yeah. don't grasp or understand what type of player they truly are. Yeah. I think that's, that's kind of nail on the head, really identify who you are as a player and be realistic identify who you are. And I think now it's, it's, it's a lot easier at the younger ages. We have video that is very uh, accessible. You know, it used to be like, it wasn't accessible, only pro teams that, I mean, now you have all these video services as far as video uh, cameras in the rink, videotaping the games. It's such a good resource. So there's, there's no longer, I think it used to be back in the days you'd have to rely on maybe somebody's, um, evaluation to help you identify who you were as a player, what they would tell you is what you would have to believe in some regard. But again, now in today's era, you have so much information, so much access to your own film. I think that's one way also to like watch yourself use that. If you really want to be serious about hockey, I think it's important. Why would you not, why would you not use that? Like seeing yourself play is huge. Would mm -hmm. you agree, Danny? Yeah. Like watching yourself seeing yourself in the space because you have your emotions, you have your thoughts, you have all that during the game. And you, sometimes you, you know, you get fired up at a teammate or fired up at a situation and you rewatch it. You're like, Oh man, like that was actually me. And that's powerful. 
So it helps you understand the situations. It help, again, helps you learn about yourself, helps you identify yourself. Um, you know, I see players that think they're super sweet with the puck and you watch it on video, man, they're chopping snakes. <laughs> like that thing's square by the time they're done with it. You're not smooth. You're not Patrick Kane. So you might want to try, you know, identify with somebody else. Um, I think I saw something the other day on social media. There was a player in the draft meetings and said that he was most like a combination of, I think it was Mitch Marner and, and Austin Matthews, something along those lines. And the player at the, the conversation was like 1.60 games. So I think that's a miss, maybe a misidentification a little bit. Um, anyhow, not to go off on a, on a tangent, but going into the going into your tryouts, going into your camps, guys, I think it's real. It's again super important to have a have a realistic understanding of, a, of what you are as a player, who you are as a player, and going and being that, because that's who you. That's the role you want to fill when you get there. And that's to say that you you know if you want to be offensive, if you want to be that guy. Uh, it doesn't turn on overnight and it doesn't happen just because you want it. It's going to take effort. It's going to take time. It's going to take investment and practice. If you want to be that elite high level guy, but what I'll say with that is you want to be the point producing guy. Again, that takes a lot of studying, a lot of reps, a lot of, uh, I can say practice. It's, it's very captain obvious to say that, but to be able to repeat, Every single night being a point creator, point producer takes so much. It's very tough to do. It's not easy just because you want to do it doesn't mean, and it doesn't happen by cheating. You see guys like we go back to, we're watching the people right now. So McKinnon's and McDavid's McDavid is not, a, he's not a cheater. <laughs> he works so hard getting back and he's not always cheating on offense. That's how he creates it. He creates it through hard work and he creates it to reading the game. Unbelievably. There's so much depth and information that, that we can learn from Connor McDavid, but I'm going off on a little bit of a tangent here, but what I would say is, again, identify before you go into these things, who you are as a player and, and be true to that when you get there. And I, and, and I'm not, I wasn't saying that if you're not an offensive guy, you have to be a grunt worker, like even offensive players, like if you're going into camp and you're quote unquote, an offensive guy, like if you're back checking and defending well in your D zone and eliminating play like i'm like you're jumping up the charts for me because i'm like wow this guy for one knows how to play the game four-rounded and cares you know yeah. it's not just oh i'm going to be the half wall guy or the load me up in the high slot and i'll score for you great but if you don't have the puck what are you doing for me right like so there's a lot of elements that that need to be addressed in a, in a player and you're right on the video aspect like they have they have ipads on the bench players are grabbing ipads after a shift you know and come off and be like Shrumpy, I, I was open there. And then you grab the iPod and it's like, well, no, there's a guy on your backside. I'm like, oh, you know, I didn't, I didn't see it. Cause I was looking through my own lens right now. I have a, yeah. you know, a, a, an over the top view and it's, it's easier to, to understand, but uh, you know, I, I, I just think watching hockey in general um, makes you a better whole rounded player. Like I, I always talk, I, I, I know that he's out of the playoffs now, but I, I really like the Barkov kid. Like yeah. he, he plays like a very strong, strong game. He's offensive, defends well. Uh, O'Reilly, same thing. Guy who's very hard to play against. All these guys are very hard to, like what, when do you see a guy that's like, oh yeah, he's easy to play against. That's why he's like, you know, you don't see them. Like they're, they're all very, very hard players to play against. I think that would be the worst tag to have is a, is a, a player who's easy to, to play against. And 
uh, coming full circle on a player who's hard to play against. I got a shirt on. <laughs> oh, I got a shirt on of, of P head, Corey Perry, um, That's who hilarious. is a very hard player to play against. Uh, I'm, I'm actually uh, flying down to Tampa to watch game six. So um, I'm hopeful, hopeful that they can uh, have a good performance. And I know that he's been playing very well for, for them, but hey, you better load up on that SPF 1000. Oh boy. Yeah, hey, I know you don't do, that, you don't fare so well in that, in that sunshine, but I'll, yeah, I'll carry an umbrella around if I, have, but, <laughs> I don't know. I just had to make sure I had to make sure that the shirt, the shirt fit before I went down there, but yeah, uh, I'm looking forward to, to heading down, catching uh Stanley cup final, uh, or actually uh, conference final hockey. But, uh, yeah, no, it's in general, it's, it's great hockey to watch right now. Like uh, every night, doesn't matter who's on, like there's, yeah. I know, I know Edmonton just sort of bowed out and, uh, and, and we have uh, some clips about Colorado. I think they're doing some pretty unique things. Uh, that, that their style of play is is uh, extremely unique in in my mind. Uh, I think it's almost like not revolutionary, but the other teams are going to try to emulate their offensive prowess on their back end and the way that they cycle the puck in zone. And um, and you know, and and obviously Edmonton, looking at their ice times, uh, they they ran their horses as much as they could. Right, like I think the second round. Um, the Edmonton over Calgary series. I think the um, McDavid and um, Drysaddle were just on a completely different level. It's hard to keep that up all the time. They they ran them pretty hard. I think they had the most ice time on the whole team out of the whole team uh, throughout this series. But uh, yeah, I know those are two very talented players. It was unfortunate that Edmonton couldn't get through it. It sounded yeah. unbelievable. It sounded unbelievable in the building, like from a from my couch. And obviously, having having been there, you and I uh, at Rexall, old Rexall Center, I could imagine. Uh, I couldn't imagine how how loud it would have been being in there. But um, hopefully, I mean, with the, with those two, I think they're uh, they'll build a, a pretty strong nucleus or or be in contention every every year. So it's good for uh, hockey. It's oh. good for Canadians and obviously the Western crew as well. The other thing too, Danny, is you start watching, paying attention, the other players around them. For me, I think more more of Connor McDavid when I think of this, but the other players started emulating him and doing things in traffic like him, which is, I think that's the, would be the best part about playing with Connor McDavid would to be on the ice with him every single day. And that's for me, that's so powerful to watch somebody else. Just like we're talking about, watch your own game or watch hockey in general. And, and it's all encompassing. Like I, I had this conversation. I played in the men's league tournament last weekend with the team here in Latvia. And that's, they were asking me questions. I was like, you know, I'm like, we, in between games, I'm like, do you guys realize that not, you guys want to know more about the game and stuff. And there's games going on right now. Do you realize nobody, not one guy's paying attention to it. We could have a beer and also watch the game. You watch the game and you watch the space and you'll start to realize what your mistakes are by watching other people. Cause it's the same shape for them as it is for us. When we go back out there in an hour, same thing for the kids, the, the shape, and you see the patterns and you see the mistakes and you can kind of gar- grasp that. But to bring that in with Connor, like I start to see watching the games, you see the other guys, their skill level come up, the, the decisions they make in traffic with the puck. It's, it's sick to watch because he's making everybody else better. And that's the best compliment you can give a player like that. And that's, you know, that's what those players do. Um, for me, it's a little bit different. Like with a Crosby, Connor's a little bit more high end, I think. Crosby's more like does everything very good, right? Like it's close to perfect. 
Connor does the same in some regard, but also has that like high end level flash to it. Would, would you agree? No, I mean, yeah, no, I, I agree. And, and uh, I mean, the game is so fast now. I think you, you look at all the players who are up there in, in points, are, they all have, there's one thing in common is they all can move. Yeah. Right. I think that the, yeah. the emphasis on the game right now is just is speed. So like it's the, the game and the creativity at such a high pace right now is like puck control speed with puck control. Yeah. It's, it's unbelievable. two things that are, that are unbelievable McKinnon's and these guys, we keep talking about them, but they're, they're worth talking about. We could talk yeah, to you in the face, but these are the people you want to grasp because this is where the trends are going. And this is where it's coming. This is the, I think this is the, in my opinion, this is the absolute moment of the 2005 lockout. This is where the game has finally come to the forefront. You know what they wanted. The old game is kind of officially gone, right? Like it's fast. It's skilled. It's, it's totally changed. And we talked about a little bit last episode, you watched while we, how we shadowed Crosby and like every shift, there was literally like 15 penalties in it. Right. Like anyways, that's 2004, 2005. I think now is where the game is finally come to where they wanted it to be. And it is very skilled. Like, again, you're watching, like, I watched some 12, 13 year old kids. They are so skilled, man. Not to get too far on a tangent. There, there's other things that we can go along and add to that. We got to start developing hockey sense to go with that. Cause now we're just doing random moves all over the place and doing jungle gym stuff and obstacle courses. But anyways, the game at the highest level right now has finally gotten to the point why they changed the rules and what they were waiting to get out of it. It's here like 34 points. And what was the games? Uh, how many games do the Oilers play? 16. Yeah. Close to that. It was 16 or around there. I should know that I should have done my homework, but still it's around 16 or 17 games. They scored 34 points. When have we seen that? Yeah. Like studs are starting to score those two, two and a half points a game, which that's what we were missing for a while. You know, that like for a while there, it was like the top point guy would be like 90 points. That 90 point guy would be worth, I don't I would get into the money talk of it, but like that guy's worth like $9 million. Now we have it where our $10 million players are scoring two points a game. And that is for me, fun. It's great to see because it's electricity. I think that's, we can expect that nightly basis to have that. We're having, I mean, we're having playoff games now that are nine, six, mm-hmm. like, not just one or two. There's been a bunch throughout the playoffs, like a very high scoring games. Um, I don't know. I, I love it. I love where the game's at. I love where it's kind of funny developed and it, it makes me want to get a membership and try to come back. You know what I mean? It's <laughs> never going to happen, but it, it makes you want to, you know, it's just such a different game. There's so much creativity and skill. It's, it's awesome to see. The, the other thing too, is like the, the, the coaching that goes on, like the innovation, you know, we, we always bring it back to hockey is like an extremely fast game of chess, right? Because there's always moving parts. And I think, um, I think you, it's, it's hard, obviously majority, if not all of the coaches in the NHL are good coaches, right? I'm not discrediting any, anyone on that, but it's very hard to make it through the playoffs, a bad coach. Right. And I, I just, a couple of things that I saw in, in Colorado, they're obviously by far the better team over, over Edmonton, but they did some unique things on, on the penalty kill. Um, they, they, they allowed the net front presence for Edmonton to just stand in front. He was, he was really of no threat to jump release back door or below the goal line. And what, what, Edmonton, or what Colorado did was they just identified each player and who they had. So 
the, they're always in a shooting lane. They're always within a couple stick lengths to be in a passing lane or in a shot lane. And they just allowed the goalie to have the player in front of the net. So effectively turning a five on four into pretty much a five on five. Right. And even on a point shot, the net front body never moved. They were trying to be in the shooting lane. And it wasn't until they sort of collected the puck to the half wall and started to attack down the half wall is when they realized, okay, that the net front presence is, is now an issue for us. Right. And they had a, 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 their high forward, take away the bumper player. They had their weak side forward, denying the pass through the seam. They had the strong side defenseman up on the half wall guy, deterring any type of shot. And then the weak side defenseman sort of left his zone coverage, I guess, to take on the net front player, right. Effectively leaving the only guy open the, the, the defenseman up top again, the quarterback defenseman, right? So you could dish it back up for a bomb, but then you're the weak side guy who's in the seam pass is already in that shooting lane, right? I just thought it was very interesting to see how they could allow the net front presence to just stand wide open in front. Like they, they effectively took everything away from the middle. The middle of the ice was nothing. Like no one could get anything in the middle of the ice and they kept pucks to the outside. I think there was a, a lot of times that there was some poor angle shots from the outside. And if they were from up top, they were either blocked or if the, the shot did come through to the, the net, the goalie obviously responsible for the, the, the rebound. But if there was a rebound, you now had the two defensemen converging on that net front player. So effectively they uh, negated, I guess, the power play a little bit like, uh, like Edmonton would have a lot of in zone time and movement and shots and opportunities, but not grade a opportunities opportunities right like Colorado did a really really good job of of taking away the two biggest threats I think on that team the two half walls would be um, McDavid and uh, Dreisaitl and effectively allowing the goalie to just take the net front forward and be like that's your guy and, and when you think about it in theory it's actually pretty smart because the goalie goalies are so big now they can just look up and around and over the one guy, right. The, where it comes into trouble obviously is, is if that net front guy gets a stick on it. Right. But because he's so close to the goalie, I, I'm not a goalie expert, but I'm assuming that that guy, the goalie will challenge out as far as he can to the backside of that net front presence. So that if there is any type of deflection, it doesn't have much time or, or range to, to move and the goalie effectively could stop it. Right. And then, your, your net front D are, are now closing in on uh, once the puck pretty much comes below the top of the circles, then they start thinking, okay, that net front guy is now a threat. But if you're on the, on the half wall up top out high, they pretty much just left, left him wide open. So it'd be interesting to see. And I think that was a change that, that occurred throughout the, the series, but it'll be interesting to see uh, what Colorado does in the, in the finals, because uh, the net front presence uh, of the opposition is a lot more mobile. They're, they're not just your token guy that stands in front and supposed to screen. They jump back door. They jump strong side below the goal line. They're constantly a threat to be a passing option and take the puck to the net. So it'll be interesting to see what Colorado does sort of in that chess game of, of, of uh, special teams to try to negate uh, any real grade A scoring chances on the power play in the finals. Yeah, it's interesting because it's watching the other series. There's a ton of seam passes, and it's becoming it's a big problem, uh, I think, for Tampa right now. And that's the big issue right now where they're getting in trouble is there's a lot of seam passes. Panarin's very patient with that puck on the one side, and they have different options. They got Fox up top for one T or cross seam over to Zabanajad. And then what you're talking about is 
basically specifically to what you're talking about, the net front guy, Kreider is very active in where he stands, you know, a lot of back doors. So it makes it the difference in the power play side of it is like you said, the Edmonton's guy was standing kind of square. And we go back to last week's categories of the zone, it's coming down category two on each side. So it's predictability for the goaltender. And also what happens with a very stagnant net front guy is that that guy actually takes away net. When that guy's not moving, not flash screening, he's not moving around there. He's standing in one spot. He's actually taking net away. And I'm saying that from a shooter's perspective. When I'm coming down that, like, that's what I would ask my net front guy. I'm like, hey, man, I don't need you to stand there and take a beating or stand there at all. At all. What I need is you either go back door so he has to worry about something, or I need you to flash his eyes right before I shoot. That's it. Because that's what happens. If they stand stagnant there, you're taking away half my net. I appreciate you standing there. It takes a lot of balls to stand there, but if we think about this objectively, you're standing in one spot. The goalie only has to worry about the other side of you. So it's, it makes it a lot tougher when that guy moves around again, because if he slides back door, that goalie's like, Oh man, you put yourself in that, you know, in that situation, you look through the goalie's perspective. Think about if you were the goalie, what would you be thinking? The guy slide, you watch him go back door, you know, he's going there and you got a guy walking right down and a guy like, you know, dry or McDavid, those are pretty good players. You, but now you have to think about which one to take, which one's more deadly to watch the shot or watch the back door gives you things to think about. And it makes it tougher for the goalie. And to your point, exactly. If that guy stands firm and where he's at, the goalie comes out to the top of his paint. There's not many places that puck can go. There's a predictability in that shot tip or where that, where that tip's going to come. So you'd have to start as a shooter. You just have to start shooting almost three feet wide on either side to get a big change of trajectory on that tip. Right. Which is, it's tough to do on the power play. You're walking down, like and thinking, shoot this three feet wide so I can get a tip. It's yeah, probably not going to happen. I think the hardest thing to defend, like, you know, five on four shorthanded or even at even strength is unpredictability. Uh, and, and I think if, if you're, if you know what the defending or the opposing team is going to do, it's easier to, to defend. So um, it, it will be interesting to see what Colorado does, because like you said, New York has Kreider in front. Uh, Tampa has uh, Sorelli, Killorn, Perry that sort of flex out all around the, the net front and they, they creep back door, they creep strong side. They, they make the goalie aware of sort of where they are. And like you said, it, it makes the goalie have to think differently instead of just being able to challenge out until he bumps into the backside of the net front guy. He's got to be, okay, I got to be loaded on this inside step in case that goes ripped back door or something like that. And then to your point too, on the flashing of the eyes, like when, when bodies are sort of going through the goalie's eyes, it's like you're long blinking all the time. It's hard to, to see uh, the puck. And, and obviously if they just have a net front uh, presence, that's sort of stationary static, it's easier just to sort of look around the shoulder one way or the other. Right. But if there's movement, it's hard to, you don't know if you might catch them when I think there's a, a goal um, a car scored uh, against Edmonton where he just wristed one on and uh, Smith had no idea where the puck went. Cause as he Club was side, yeah. Yeah. As he was about to shoot, he got sort of, like you said, flash screened and, and then the puck's already in the air and he can't, he never saw the shot or release. So he doesn't know trajectory of the, of the puck. He knew obviously he was coming over that area. So he just sort of threw out his glove. Like hopefully this hits it, but even, even at, at even strength, I think unpredictability, in zone, there's a lot of creativity going on in in all the teams. Uh, how they play with the puck, they're activating their D. They're uh, they're a lot more creative, and I think that's very hard to defend when you when you don't really know 
what they're doing. They have a set sort of system probably, but they allow their players to be creative within the system. And that's the hardest to defend, right? When they're, when there's, they're allowed to play together and be creative and, and feed off one another, it's very, very hard to defend. And uh, it, it's just been great hockey to watch. And uh, I look forward to obviously the rest of the uh, conference finals and hopefully uh, some good games live down in, in Tampa and then uh, a good Stanley Cup finals. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's there's one thing that I've been noticing that's it's I've talked about it a couple episodes ago, maybe, and and how the playoffs turn into the cycle game. And, you know, it's it's kind of been a, this series was a combination of both because there's so much firepower on both sides. It, we had the car jumping up in the rush. McDavid, Drysaddle leading really every single turnover turned into a transition the other way. So there was a lot of track meets still in this series. But what I found was in, in Edmonton's game, I thought I, I felt like there was a lot of really good cycle plays. And I feel like this is a little bit of a lost art in the NHL and, and in hockey in general. And, and what I think is, is big for this is for players, uh, for athletes, you know, in my opinion, is, is being multi-sport athletes. And, and something along the lines where I'm going with this is, is for hockey is, is kids that play basketball and understanding picks and screens and setting your player up. You know, if you watch the, you know, Steph Curry and the Golden State team the way that they set you know they set up their three-point guys the picks that they move the moving screens and it's all about setting up that guy and buying him time and space being able to understand that theory and that chess match of a different sport and then bringing it to hockey um i knew for myself growing up we worked a ton on cycling and setting picks and allowing setting a pick so that guy your teammate can get into a golden opportunity and for me, that's where I had some clips today was just from that and highlighting that with Edmonton in the last series. I thought they did a great job of it, whether it be power play or whether it be five on five. And Drysaddle is really good at it. And you can watch a few of these clips where Drysaddle sets a pick. He buys McDavid a time. He buys him a second or two of time. And that second or two of time winds up coming back to him. McDavid gets a second. The, that guy that Drysaddle picks now. He's a second late to McDavid. As soon as that guy comes a second late, McDavid picks that guy apart. Cause if you can buy, you know, in general, if you can buy your, any teammate one or two seconds in a play, that's huge. When you can buy Connor McDavid a second or two in a play, it's, you know, astronomical. So just highlighting these picks and the way that, you know, guys are setting up the next play, I think again, is a lost art. And for players, out there now it's, you know, there's a sense of it too, where you got to be a little bit careful where you can't just literally blatantly go and skate into a guy and like knock him down. You don't have the puck. He doesn't have the puck. That's interference, but having that mindset of like, okay, how can I help my teammate get a little free here? How can I, where can I stand to help him get open? Um, I think that's important. And, and watching a lot of hockey, I, I think just seeing, I don't see that a lot. You know, I don't see that a lot in the game. So that's where I want to go with, with some clips today and just highlight that you can see again, dry sets a couple picks for McDavid. The first one, it's a give and go. He sets the pick for McDavid. McDavid walks up the corner. The guy that uh, dry picks now chases McDavid. McDavid makes a nice play, makes it down to dry on the goal line, backdoor goal. You know, a lot of this series from Colorado and Edmonton had a, a little bit of the track meet, the normal stuff. I, I mentioned a couple episodes back about, you know, usually the regular season is all track meet and not a lot of cycling. I felt like, Edmonton did a really good job of doing both on turnovers. They, they, you know, got the puck transition very well, but what I liked about their game was they, they added both. They had some great cycle plays here and a guy that I liked a lot in this 
in this series, obviously you did a hell of a job with points wise, but these little things I started paying attention to like setting picks and cycling the puck. And I, th- I feel like it's a little bit of a lost art in today's game. Um, you know, you see one guy come out of the corner and then the F3 guy will just drive the net kind of blindly and, and see what happens again, learning from what we're watching here and watching, you know, the top end players watch dry and how he sets picks for Connor. He buys him time. And that time that he's buying for him is huge. Like if you can set, you can set a pick and buy, you know, like a normal teammate, one or two seconds, it's, it's huge. When you can buy a guy like McDavid, like one or two seconds, think about that. It's insane. Uh, a step, even a step. Like I'm thinking on the defensive side of things, like if I'm defending a player and all of a sudden I got to make that split second decision. Do I go this way or that way around this essential moving pick? Obviously, ideally I would try to hope that he bumps into me and I can sort of, you know, flop a little easier for an interference play. But if it's a really good, if it's a really good moving pick where it's not interference, I, I have to reroute myself. And with the speed and power of a lot of these guys, like it it doesn't take, it takes a half stride and that puck's going to be a chance opportunity for the net. And I think, uh, dry is one of the best players in the game now on sort of slowing the play down, even though it's a fast paced game, he really possesses and, and has so much poise and his creativity. He makes all the players around him way better. Yeah, he's, he's unbelievable. I love the way he uses his frame when he has the puck for puck protection. And then again, on these kind of things like setting picks, buying time for his teammates, he's super smart with it and pick and rolls. Like he's unbelievable pick and roll. Um, he, you know, he doesn't just stand there. He gets open after and in the space that he frees up and the time that he buys, it usually winds up buying him dividends back. Um, again, I thought they did a great job rolling off. They made a lot of great plays off out of coming out of the corner. And, um, you know, there's even a couple of times to seeing some D in there, CC's in there, setting picks, buying time and space for, for McDavid to, to create something out of the corner. And that's another thing, again, watching the trends and watching what you're seeing, you're watching these games live at least for me, when I see it, I'm like, how many times did I watch McDavid come out of the corners with full speed? Now that's something that would ring a bell to me. Be like, that's something I should work. That's a pattern I should work on. I should work on what that takes to come, you know, roaring out of that corner attacking. And I'll bring it back to last week's episode, the categories of the zone, how to come out of category one attacking category two and get these better faces of the net. What does that look like? And again, when we watch these games, you watch these live games, you, for me, it, it shows me those patterns. Like, what does that look like? Where do I need to start my speed? You know what I mean? And you see, like, McDavid's kind of always in motion. He's always moving. He's always ready to pounce. And I think that combined with your teammates reading off each other, c- cycling the puck, and cycling the puck doesn't mean one guy takes it up the wall and just randomly throws it down. Because I know there's that drill in practice. You've probably done it a thousand times. I know I've done it a thousand times. Three guys just go and we go do, 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 do. And then sometimes you get up to the point and then three guys go in that shoot. This is more something I'm more passionate about. It's like running these cycle drills as a coach, like three on twos down low. You started in a certain position again, where the forward comes out from behind the net. And then the other two players got to move around, set picks, try to get that player freed up. And you start moving on those pick and rolls and seeing what they look like live versus again, the three on O drill where, you just go in a big circle. I, I think, and also if you, if you're watching the game in zone, like a player will never follow 
the contour of the boards with the puck. Like he's always going to give him some room like between himself and the boards to make that cutback. Cause if you're, if you're just following the contour of the boards and being like, okay, now I got a cycle. I know you can't turn back the other way. So I can play you a lot differently, but if you give yourself space along the wall, it makes it harder for me to defend. Cause I have to respect the fact that you have speed and could roll over the top. So I have to be on the inside of you, but then also it gives yourself the ability to make a cutback. So I can't overplay you one way because you could turn, you can spin off me and take it to the, to the net hard. I think McCarr did it uh, in regular season uh, not too long ago, but then talking about being unpredictable with the back end, I think that now you're seeing a lot more D be active. I think Colorado does a very, very good job, probably the best in the league of being active. New York, uh, maybe a second, a close second, but uh, even, even at Edmonton is, is being active in it. And by no means are their defensemen the most mobile in the world, but like, Cody CC is running down, trying to create a pick or havoc or un- unpredictability where maybe you get a winger that has to make a switch with a low centerman. And now all of a sudden the centerman's on the D and the, the low winger who traditionally isn't as good as a, a centerman down low has to, is forcefully having to play down low, right? Like you get a small little mismatch like that. And you better believe players at this level recognize who's defending them. And if they're like, oh, I got, I got a winger on me. Like I'm going to try to take it to the net, just not knocking wingers. just in traditionally defensemen and centermen are always the low guys. So if you get someone outside of their comfort zone, like you take that, you take advantage of it as best you can. Yeah. And I think I mentioned a little bit earlier, this, the shape, the shape of the rink is the same for the peewees as it is for the NHL guys. The nets are in the same place. So it's again those trends. If you can understand them when you're younger, it's, it's it makes it even better because the mistake becomes magnified. The mistake that we're talking about at this level, when you get that winger off and you get him out of position, you get him uncomfortable. It's like a window of like half a second, maybe one second, maybe. At the pee wee level, it's like a four second window. You know what I mean? Like it becomes a bigger mistake. So it's 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 about understanding these things completely. And hopefully we do a good enough job explaining them to you and what you're trying to do and what you're trying to achieve out of it. But watching these high level guys and, and pulling apart, you know, their tendencies, breaking them down and explaining them to you. And then obviously I, I like this concept of Danny and I going back and forth because it's so important. I see the game offensively and I'm, I'm always trying to find that crack. And then Danny's very strategic defensively understands all the nuances as well. Are you on the wall? Do you have a step? So, you, you know, are you, two or three feet off the wall so you can cut back because he knows if I do cut back and he, if he overcommits and I do cut back, he's burned. And now he cheated and he not cheated, but he gambled on something and the risk and reward was not there because now I got the upper hand. I'm coming in. And anyways, this back and forth, I think is beneficial. We really want to make it, you know, understandable for everybody. So you kind of know what to, when you're watching this stuff, what to look for and what these players do so well. And uh, I think there's a ton of value in that. And, we're going to continue doing this and continue breaking these things down so that everybody can understand them. And then everybody knows what they're trying to get out of those situations. Yeah, no, I think, I think, uh, the, the, the hardest to defend is motion, right? Again, going back to unpredictability in zone, when players are moving all over the place, you don't have your stationary guy just in front of the net or your stationary guy, F3 high, like feed me, I'm loaded. And like, that's easy to defend, right? I can be a stick length away from you and, 
whether you, I interrupt the pass or as you're getting it, I'm, I'm back pressuring your stick. You're not even going to get the shot off. It's, it's that constant, like stirring soup motion and in zone where guys are just flowing everywhere. And I think uh, to your videos, I think that's the, the, the best is when you you're with a line or you're accustomed with certain tendencies of a player because you've been with them for a long period of time that you, you get to understand what they're, so it, it may be unpredictable for the defending team, but for me, if I'm on your line, I'm like, okay, you, he normally comes up the wall and starts to attack over the top of the circle. So I'm going to go here and just create that confusion. Or maybe I can go, maybe if I'm a defenseman and you're coming up the strong side, or I know that you're going to come up the strong side because I've played with you long enough. I'm going to start, I'm going to just jump towards the net and I'm going to forcefully bring my winger who's covering me down towards the net and collapse, give you a lot more space to roll over the top, right? Like, I think all these things are, are just different, different ways to, to sort of see the game. And hopefully it does translate and sort of, I guess, to your point, if, if someone wants us to cut down someone's a, a specific player or a, a type of system or a team's in zone power play breakout, whatever, by all means, like flip us a message on social media and we'll, we'll gladly do it because uh, as much as we can educate the, uh, the listener as possible, we're, we're going to obviously try to do it. I have a lot of fun doing it, Rob, you're one of the best at it as well. So, uh, you know, I really enjoy, uh, doing that, but, um, bringing it sort of full circle. Now I'm obviously rocking my Corey Perry t-shirt. Uh, so I, I should be a, somewhat of a fan favorite in, in only Tampa, probably none of the other 31, uh, buildings, but, uh, you know, points bet Canada does a really good job for, for us helping out in our, uh, in our podcast. And, uh, and conversely, I've been donating to them as well in, <laughs> in ways of betting. Uh, I haven't really found a, a perfect way to, to recoup my, my earnings, but, uh, what it, what is fun for me is the live betting aspect. Like I like, you know, if a team goes down and I sort of am watching the game and I see, Holy cow, the momentum shift, like the, def- the down a goal is is getting all kinds of chances just not going in then i'll i'll throw a little bit of money on the team and it, it, because the odds are so good right and the other thing with goaltending right now on the at least on the uh, eastern side uh goaltending is unbelievable so i i've i've actually enjoyed betting on the the saves aspect where there's an over under on saves for goalie or and and you can create your own uh, line as well on it. So, uh, I've been sort of teetering around like the 25, 30 save mark because both teams create so much offense in, in Tampa and New York and both goalies are unbelievable. So barring any type of injury, they're probably all going to sort of hit it. I'm sure that the, the line will keep inflating a little bit because they are so good, but the ability for me on their website on points bet is to be able to adjust the spread. I've dropped it down a little bit, just the odds aren't the greatest for me, but I've, I've won it every single time. So I, I'm probably going to keep doing the same. You're going to keep hitting the bats on the goalies. You're betting on them. It's fun. It's fun. Like, cause I, like at the end of the day, like obviously I'm, I'm rocking my digital, you know, 16 bit Corey Perry t-shirt. So I'm, <laughs> I, I am deep down cheering for Tampa, but uh, when I'm watching a game, I, I'm just sort of watching the shot clock. Right. And, and okay, there's, they only need three more. He only needs to make three more saves and I win my bet type thing. Obviously yeah. the game within the game is, is fun for me. And that's why I do a lot of sort of live betting. Well, Danny, I'm wish, wishing you the best of luck with, with that. If, if I could give you some advice, someone, I, I mean, paying attention and watching, I would, I'd be probably betting on 
Panarin and Zibanejad. I like that tandem. I love the way they're finding each other right now, and I don't see a solution uh, for that PK against those guys. They're on the PP. They're they're unbelievable. They're deadly. Panarin is so patient with the puck. Those two guys, I would be betting the points on them. Um, and if I were to take someone from Tampa, I would. I mean, I like. Stamkos, they're they're really setting them up. They're teeing them up on that side. So those those one timer guys in that in that series, watching the last game from the power plays, those are your best bets. Those are those are your ponies. If if I was going to be putting some bet uh, some bets on it, I'd be looking at those guys. Um, but all the best of luck to you, buddy. Pulling for you, bringing the big bucks, and let's meet somewhere down in Cabo. <laughs> Thanks, Trumpy. I uh, hopefully obviously uh, deep down that Tampa wins because I'm obviously going to be going down to to watch our butt, good buddy and. In Corey Perry, but uh, it was good, obviously, catching up again, talking hockey. I really enjoyed uh, listening to your NFT project. Uh, I, I really love the hand of OG Astro Mets. Um, thank you, thank you. And, yeah, no problem, buddy. And uh, again, if if anyone wants us to break down any clip, any team, if you're a, a fan who who wants to see uh, sort of a Rob's vision through whatever your offensive team's tactics are, or myself breaking down something, by all means. Uh, hit us up on social media uh, at Rob Shrimp, at Danny Sivret, or at the Shrimp and Sivret Show. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks, everybody. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Shrimp and Sivret Show. Don't forget to subscribe to the Nation Network YouTube channel to watch all of our video breakdowns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.